The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is David Meerman Scott, and I am the author of The New Rules of Marketing and PR, new seventh edition, How to Use Content Marketing, Podcasting, Social Media, AI, live video, and newsjacking to reach buyers directly, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener, to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever you need to learn more about, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing world of marketing and sales in order to remain successful. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies to become better known, liked, and trusted in this modern era of the customer who doesn't want to be marketed or sold to. To learn more about the problems we solve, visit salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome David Merriman Scott back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, How to Use Content Marketing, Podcasting, Social Media, AI, Live Video, and Newsjacking to Reach Buyers Directly, 7th edition, published by Wiley. David Merriman Scott is an expert in using real-time tools and strategies to spread ideas, influence minds, and build business. His popular blog, advisory work with fast-growing companies, and worldwide speaking engagements and training seminars give him a unique perspective on how businesses are implementing strategies to reach buyers directly. David is the best-selling author of 10 books, including Real-Time Marketing and PR, The New Rules of Sales and Service, and Fanocracy, and Interesting fact, his daughter, Reiko, with whom he wrote his last book, Fanocracy, is now an emergency room physician in Boston. David, congratulations on the seventh edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. I love it. It's your. It's just like my home, Douglas. I love coming back onto the show. Thank you very, very much for having me back again. I hope I haven't overstepped my welcome here. <laughs> Absolutely not. And when I made an announcement on LinkedIn that I was going to interview you about the seventh edition, it just blew up. <laughs> so it's, it's needless awesome. to say, it's a, it's a popular book. And just a few uh, things for folks that haven't listened to my interviews with you. you you're now a uh, currently the one and only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. And that <laughs> that does not include your visit on uh, the short time series, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails, of which you 
uh, were a guest. So I, I hoisted a glass of red wine that, yes, that night. That was fun, actually. It was. And uh, I should let folks know that you are the godfather of the Marketing Book Podcast, and you're going to get a sense for why, but David Merriman Scott was the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, and that was to talk about the new rules of sales and service. You've come back to talk about uh, marketing secrets of the Grateful Dead, fanocracy, and then we were able to talk uh, three years ago, I guess, about the sixth edition of the new rules uh, of marketing and PR, and I wanted to uh, read a quick quote from your co-author of Marketing Secrets of the Grateful Dead, HubSpot co-founder Brian Halligan. He wrote, when I read the new rules for the first time, it was a eureka moment for me at HubSpot. David nailed the fundamental shifts going on in the buyer-seller relationship and wrote the classic text to help marketers take advantage of them. And if I'm not mistaken... The first edition of the book was written in 2007, the year the iPhone first came out. And I think that was only a year after uh, HubSpot started. I think they started in in 2006. And I know this makes David uncomfortable, but I've got to let the uh-huh. listener know, I get a lot of requests for book recommendations and people, you know, and, and all book recommendations are different because it depends on your context. But I always like to explain that there are two books, just two books that have had the biggest influence on my working life, which is now, you know, well over 30 years. And the first one was after I got out of the army, I read and I didn't know what I was going to do. Went back to school. I read Ogilvy on advertising in the 1980s. And I Mm -hmm. said, that's what I want to do. I want to go work in advertising. Next thing I knew I was working at J. Walter Thompson in New York City, and I had a you know I was advertising for a long time after that. I even started my own advertising firm. But that book, the right book at the right time, can have an enormous influence on your life. So, fast forward to gosh, maybe uh, not long after the first edition came out, and I started noticing this really cool advertising game that I was in was really kind of <laughs> kind of crumbling, <laughs> kind of going away. And it was, uh, of course, I was in denial for a while because I still had advertising clients, and I started thinking what do I do now? It was like I kind of went into a deep despair there. And I somehow got hold of David Merriman Scott's, an early edition of his book. I read it and I had the same feeling of when I read David Ogilvy's book, meaning I had a second bite at the career apple. I understood where all this stuff was going and I really haven't looked back. It's really looking back it had such an enormous impact. So the fact that you were the first guest on the show meant a lot to me. And the fact that you've come back here, I really, really appreciate it. And since I've read a number of the editions, reading this book, David Merrin Scott, was like attending a reunion. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You're, you're a recovering madman. How about that? That's right. That's exactly what it is. And so <clears throat> when I read through this and I read about a lot of the pushback you still get, and I think you're going to get forever, it just reminds me of the mindset of a lot of clients and, and advertising people that, that I worked with. But that, back then, advertising really did work. There was a captive audience, and there were media gatekeepers, and it, and it worked uh, really quite well. So this is, this is just the, the thing that helped me understand that you could say the Copernican revolution that's going on where you know the the sun actually uh, the earth actually rotates around the sun instead of the sun around the earth and so and so on now David, I normally start each interview by reading an excerpt from the book 
And because this book is so special to me, <laughs> I'm now going to read all 404 pages. <laughs> Page one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you know, you know, what's really interesting is um, this. I read the sixth edition for the audiobook version. Um, uh, I had not read the earlier editions we did audiobooks for. We generally do an audiobook every other edition. Uh-huh. And, um, and so, um, because reading all 400 pages in a studio, uh, and then having to go back and fix mistakes takes more than a week. <laughs> so uh, this would be an extremely long podcast for me to read <laughs> okay. all 400 pages. <laughs> so you see how, see listener, see how David's already helping you out there. Now, <laughs> one thing that's really interesting to a, a book nerd like me is that it is 404 pages. And the last one, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you know these things. The last one I recall was 396 pages. But, but uh-huh. you know, but who's keeping track of those things? But who's counting? Right. And it's always interesting to me to see what you added and what you have decided you can de-emphasize. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I added a couple of things that I think have now become very important. The most, imp- the most important thing and the biggest addition was an entire chapter on artificial intelligence. Um, uh, uh, pretty rare that I add a brand new chapter to the book. So did one on artificial intelligence and machine learning. I added a pretty big section on voice search. Mm-hmm. So with um, Alexa and Siri and whatnot, um, a lot of people are doing voice search and they'll go in and say, hey, what's a great Mexican restaurant in Boston? Now, what's interesting about a voice search is that it only brings up one um, result typically. And so it's a very different thing around search engine marketing to figure out how to get at the at the top of the voice search results. So those are a couple of things I added. Um, I'm always adding new stories, which are super fun to get some new ideas into the book. Um, um, but a few things went away as well. Um, Google Plus. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yes, I invested um, my life savings know, in that thing, damn it. I, I know, right? Um, but, you know, <laughs> really. many, many of us many of us thought, "Oh my gosh, Google is doing a social network. They want to compete with Facebook. I should probably get it on." And I did, and many of I think you did too, Douglas. Mm-hmm. Many of us got on Google Plus and um, you know, I, I did a bunch of posts and added some photos and and whatnot. Um, and I rem- I don't rem- I think it might have been the second or third edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR. I had to add Google Plus in there, and I made mm-hmm. a big deal of adding it. And, and now it's gone away. Google closed it down. I think it was last year. Um, so Google Plus, sadly, RIP, is no longer in the book because it's no long it it no longer exists. Um, so 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 that went away. Um, and. Um, and and so you know, always looking for what's changed, and what is most interesting to me is that I I started writing the very first edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR back um, probably around two thousand late two thousand four, early two thousand five. Um, all through 2006. And um, then the manuscript was due in the very beginning of 2007. So as I was writing, Facebook was only for students. The biggest social network was, can you guess it, Douglas? You probably know. What year was this? Um, 06. So MySpace? 
Yeah. 20 million subs, uh, users of MySpace, the biggest social network on the planet. 20 million. Can you imagine that? <laughs> um, and Twitter uh, Twitter um, didn't exist when I was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, YouTube had just came out. Facebook only for students. So, um, you know, things were really different. But, but, but the strategies have not changed. You know, Brian Halligan in that quote you read, said it was a eureka moment when I had talked about these ideas of how the buying um, cycle has has, um, changed and David sorted that out, Brian said, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So what's what's interesting to me is that I have yet to go in and really alter strategy in the new rules of marketing and PR. It's about reaching your buyers, understanding your buyers really well, reaching them with content, um, being um, active in real-time communications. And and those things haven't changed. When you first wrote this book, David, did you think at some point it was going to no longer be necessary? Did you think everyone would ultimately catch on? I don't, you know, I don't know if, I ever thought that it would be anywhere remotely what it became. You know, at that time, as I was writing, there were very, very few people on this planet talking about these ideas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the term, no one was talking about social media yet. Um, uh, Facebook was a thing. MySpace was a thing, but it wasn't like social media. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, only 20 million people on MySpace, the largest social network, people weren't really talking about content as a way uh, on the web, blogging as a way to um, to do marketing. And so I, at that time, was thinking, this is really just about um, me thinking of a, a way to use the tools of the web better uh, for marketers. And yes, it's so important that it is the new rules of marketing. Um, and I don't know that I th- at that time thought that the entire planet would be doing it, um, whether they learned it from me or other places, that the entire planet would be doing it. Um, I don't know that I I had that <laughs> inflated an opinion of myself. Yeah, yeah, that, w- that would make sense. Yeah. But also, I, I think that you and I are probably further along and we I, it's hard to realize now that I know about all this over the years I still almost every day run into companies that uh, are so surprised when I explain them uh, sort of a rudimentary um, outline of of what the book is about oh there's no question that I'm still running across people 13 years later um, who for whom these ideas are all brand new mm-hmm. um, but but what's different uh, very different in 13 years is that when I first started to talk about these ideas, there was a heck of a lot of pushback. Yes. Um, you know, the the world that you came from, the the Madison Avenue world, the advertising agencies were pushing back in a ridiculous way on these ideas. The public, the public relations gatekeepers, you know, the mm. public relations society of America, PRSA, people like that pushing back hugely on these ideas, um, um, marketing, um, you know, seasoned marketing people pushing back in a huge way on these ideas. They, they, you know, those people, um, basically were saying, you know, this is BS. This, this is not the future of marketing. This is just some little corner. And, you know, if I have a, if I have a, a marketing budget of, um, 
of X, call it 100, um, then maybe I can put a quarter of 1% um, into this weird stuff that David's talking about. But this, is, but this isn't the future. Um, that, was, that was everywhere. I remember in the early days, 07, 08, giving presentations to um, groups of marketers and groups of public relations people where the body language was, you know, people had their arms crossed mm -hmm. and they were like looking up at me with hate <laughs> because they're like, no, this is not the future. This is not the new rules. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, 13 years later, um, I think everybody understands that this is a very important approach. These are the new rules. Um, they're just, the question is, are they doing them yet or not? It's, but, it, but it's very rare that I run across people who are like, what are you talking about? You know, I thought the only way to reach people was to advertise. I've never heard of Facebook before. What are you, you, know, what are you talking about? Um, uh, you know, now it's like, you know, if there's 2 billion people on Facebook or whatever crazy number it is, and, and, and Twitter comes up in conversations every, you know, every, every, all the time. Um, uh, and Twitter is on, you know, the, that you see Twitter IDs on, on mainstream media all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you cannot, you cannot not know that these are the new rules. Uh, it's just a matter of whether you've decided to learn them or not. And I think the people who are pushing back now, are really pushing back against their own fear. Um, there, you know, we're not. We humans are naturally fearful of those things that we don't yet know, we don't yet do. And you know, it's kind of scary to say, "Hey, you know, if I've invested all of my time in cold calling, um, and and that's what I know, that's what I'm good at. How can I change? It's fearful to change. And so, um, I think that's what they're pushing back against their own fear. Whereas before they were pushing back against their own ignorance. I was still surprised at the amount of pushback you describe in the book, however. <laughs> and uh, maybe some of it is unspoken, but you say that you, you know, travel the world and you, uh, you still get certain questions. And I thought that interesting in the book where you say, well, a lot of times people will ask me this, you know, and it's sort of like uh, that idea you had where you're bringing you're answering questions before they they almost have them. So, for those folks that are may maybe wondering or maybe they're new to this, um, what are the old rules of marketing and PR, and why are they so much less effective in an online world? So, I, I describe the old rules as three things. The old rules are number one, you have to buy attention. You buy attention by spending money to put your messages in front of people on somebody else's um, platform. So that's magazines, radio, television, newspaper, build, billboards by the side of the road, um, buying an email list, direct mail. Those are, and, and others, a trade show booth space, things like that. Um, the second way is that you beg members of the media to write about you. So in other words, um, you're, you're focused on having somebody else write about you. That's sort of, so that's public relations. Um, and then the third way to generate attention is to bug people one at a time. Uh, uh, you know, whether that's cold calling or knocking on doors or having a storefront, um, whatever it is, um, you're, um, 
uh, you're trying to reach people one at a time. So not that any of those are wrong, not that those are going away. I'm not suggesting that it's an either or, but, but those are the old rules. The new rules are that um, it, you can create content and publish it yourself. So that can be um, a, a video channel. It can be blog. It can be what you're doing right now with a podcast. It can be um, uh, it can be videos and infographics and 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 lots of different ways to number one understand your buyers, who they are, what their problems are, and then create the kind of content that that will be interesting to them. That drives them into understand who your brand is, what you do, and then they're more likely to buy from you. Um, those are the new rules. Right. So let's jump into a couple of the topics. There's, it's really interesting to see what we're even going to have time for, but I, just a few that I think might be helpful based on my knowledge of the, of the, the listeners out there. And let's talk about uh, websites and, and content. Yes. And this is one that I just run into on a weekly basis. Uh, let's see. It's on page 42. And you say, um, uh, build, it has to do with building websites. There's much more to think about than just the content, which you've mentioned. Uh, design, color, navigation, and appropriate technology are all important aspects of a good website. Unfortunately, these other concerns often dominate. In other words, the content is more important. Why do these other things still dominate? I think a lot of it depends on who is put in charge of a website um, and uh, whether that's somebody who's working at your company or uh, an agency partner that's working with you. So, um, you know, if, if the, if the partner that's in charge is an SEO jockey, you know, who's really digs into the whole idea of search engine optimization, um, then a website will skew towards um making it just so focused on SEO that sometimes it's, it, it, it isn't as good for the, the people who are actually um, there on the site itself. Uh, if the people who are building that site are very skilled in design, uh, which is true of many websites, by the way, beautiful design, mm -hmm. um, that that becomes the focus of the website. Uh, and I think that the idea of starting with the content, you know, whether, you know, what's the, what does the text look like? What does the video look like? What do the images look like? How can we arrange this so that it's focused on the buyers? I call them buyer personas, but mm -hmm. the, the people we're trying to reach, can we create a navigation schema where we're focused on um, attracting the people that we, um, we, that we will, we will be able to help and then uh, organize around that. So I think that the best websites put together those different skills. And then um, within those skills, there's somebody who perhaps is sort of an executive editor role, you know, someone who's in charge of, of, of managing those different people and those different skill sets so that you have um, uh, content, you have design. You have um, the technical aspects, the whole um, putting it together using HTML. Then, and then you have the search engine optimization aspects, um, the usability, and there's all sorts of different components. 
Um, but but having it be driven by scum, by somebody who's focused on one particular skill um, generally means that it skews in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you go on to write that uh, you see many examples where website owners become so concerned about technology and design that they totally forget <laughs> that great content is the most important aspect of any website. And you say you've been. And I've it. seen I've seen some new webs. I've seen some new websites. Uh, it's it's rare, but I love it when I see it. Um, where they still have the Greek in it. They haven't even removed it. So you know, Greek being the fake letters that you copy and paste into a into a, a website as you're building it as a placeholder for the content that you'll eventually drop in. Yeah, but it looks great, and right? I've, I've, I mean, I've 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 seen quite a few, maybe a dozen over the years uh, where somebody's built a new website and it's beautiful. It's got, you know, the pretty colors and it's got the pretty images and it's, you know, it's got the bells and whistles and they didn't think it really even think through the content. That was the afterthought, you know, and they yeah, we'll get that later. Have, you know, have some college intern or something draft up a few things and yeah, we'll get to that later. And then, um, and then I'm kind of looking at the site and then bang, you get to a whole page where it's that fake language, the Greek, so-called Greek. <laughs> and they haven't even built out the content of their site because they're so focused on making it pretty. Well, and I think it also shows that it really just wasn't that much of a priority. And you also write that You've been writing and speaking about the importance of content and marketing for 20 years now, and it is still know, right? the most overlooked element of most websites. Now, you mentioned buyer personas. Explain buyer personas and why they are, I would argue, central to your whole approach. So the biggest problem that most marketers have is that they spend too much time talking about their company, their products, and their services. It's an egotistical approach to marketing. And that actually comes from the, the advertising industry because with advertising, you know, often you had to talk about the product and service. You had, you know, one page in a newspaper or 30 seconds on a television spot to get the message of what the thing is you're selling in, out into that marketplace. Um, but if you have unlimited real estate in the form of a website or YouTube channel, whatever it is, um, you, focusing on your products and services does not do well at all. Instead, focus on the people you're trying to reach. I, again, I call them buyer personas. Um, some people call them ideal customers, and there's other terms that can be used. But I'm not talking about an advertising demographic. Mm -hmm. An advertising demographic is, you know, um, 40 to 60-year-old um, women um, uh, who, who like to exercise on Pelotons. That's an advertising demographic. I'm talking about what are the problems that a buyer has? How would a buyer describe the problems that they have? Um, and then um, uh, how, how can you understand deeply the words and phrases that your buyers would use to describe their problems. How can you segment buyers into uh, groups? And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, and this is actually a new story in the book um, where uh, um, I actually spoke with some a real estate agent um, in Maine. And this particular place in Maine is about one hour um, from the southern border of Maine. So it's about two hours, a little bit less than two hours from Boston. 
and the real estate um, person was going to be marketing um, a beautiful farm. Um, and it was an expensive farm as well over a million dollars. Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember the, the statistics, but let's say a hundred acres with a barn and a beautiful farmhouse and, you know, um, fenced in areas for animals. And it was like beautiful, beautiful place. Now, if you'd focus on the product, which is what almost everybody does and what almost all real estate agents do, they focus on the fact that, oh, this is a f- five bedroom, three bathroom house built in such and such a year and a barn that's this big, that's built in such and such a year and a hundred acres with a beautiful stream running through it, blah, 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 describing the property located in such and such a town. Um, Okay, great. If you think about it from the perspective of buyer personas, who is going to be a potential buyer for this house? Um, Now, what's interesting is that a um, a beautiful farmhouse like that in, in Southern Maine, which is two hours from Boston, all of a sudden that becomes a potential vacation house for someone who lives in the city of Boston. All of a sudden that becomes a place that people could move to who are professionals who can work from home to, um, uh, to work there as opposed to in the big city. Um, all of a sudden it becomes um, uh, reimagined for who might be the buyer for that farmhouse. And so a smart real estate agent would, would then say, say, how can I create interesting content on my website that markets this property to a buyer who happens to live in Boston, who's looking for a vacation house and who maybe doesn't want to go to Cape Cod or doesn't want to go to the ski mountains, but might consider a farmhouse. How can I market this house and farm to um, uh, a a young um, um, professional couple uh, who might want to move out of the city and live in the country instead of the city? And those become the buyer personas. And the more information you learn about the problems those buyers face, the better the content you can create that can attract them to maybe want to buy that farm. And I've just seen it work so well that in Adele Ravella's book, Buyer Personas, she talked- Which I wrote forward to. Yes, that's right. I remember you wrote about uh, GoPro. And actually, wasn't that part of a a series, uh, the New Rules series? Yeah, I had a couple of books that I helped authors to put out, including Inbound Marketing from Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shaw, the co-founders of HubSpot. Oh. Uh, but yeah, and um, some good books in that series. Yeah, I'll say. And uh, I just remember she described it as an unfair advantage. <laughs> and I really agree. It's almost like cheating. It's, it's, and, it, and it's an approach that it's an approach that very few people do, you know, and, and again, I need to emphasize it's not an advertising demographic. It's not slicing people into, um, you know, an income of 50 to $75,000 and two kids. It's that's not what it is. Um, it's understanding what problems people have and and creating the kind of content that you can use to reach them. And David Mirren Scott is a former New York ad man, Madison Avenue. I would like now to uh, apologize and beg forgiveness for all my sins uh, now and in the past uh, that that we all uh, look at for advertising. So let's talk about this really old term called blogging. <laughs> you say that yeah. blogging has changed your life 
It's it's helped you accomplish your goals. How so? And do you still need a blog in this age of you know social networking? <laughs> what a what a baited question, my friend. Um, so. Here's the thing about a blog. There's a number of things I could riff on here. But firstly, um, with social networks, you don't own your content. As soon as you post it, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to that social network. So what can happen? Well, we talked about Google Plus a couple minutes ago. The social network can disappear. <laughs> right. You know, and if you've, if you've spent 500 hours curating a fabulous set of content on a social network, it can go away. Um, it, you can spend a whole bunch of time creating content on a social network. They can change the algorithm and no one can, no one might see it anymore. I, I think we um, should plan on that. It's I, I think, I, I think so too. And I think, I think that it's actually already happening, you know, and, and I think Facebook is the worst culprit. Um, I, I think they're evil. I really don't like Facebook and I, I've, I'm still on it. I use it a tiny bit. Um, I almost never go there, maybe once a week. Um, and one of the problems is that unless you pay them, they don't show your content to people. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. but um, And the other problem no, is- No, wait a minute, David. It's like 1% reach. Uh, it's ridiculous. And their algorithm is tuned to profit, not tuned to showing content to people who you care about and having that those people's content be shown to you. Um, they're focused on polarization because polarization means they sell more. Um, and it's just, so anyway, we could go down that rat hole even further, but, but the basic idea with a social network, you don't own the content, you don't um, have the ability to show it, uh, the social network does. However, a blog, assuming that you created on your own real estate, so there are blog soft, blogging software that you do it on their real estate. Tumblr is a good example. I'm talking about a blog that you own the URL. Um, that's either part of your existing website or a separate URL, but you own the real estate. Um, that is important for everybody to have. I think every person should have real estate on the web where they showcase who they are. And I think every company needs real estate on the web where they show showcase who they are. And so a blog is a really good place to do that. And, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I say a blog changed my life because I've now been blogging, well, since 2004. So what is that, 16 years? 16 years. My God, it um, seems like a really long time. But um, I'm still getting people who um, enter a search term and find my blog from blog posts I wrote 15 years ago, more than a decade ago. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I've met, met, my, met friends there. I've, I've um, tested out ideas for books there. Uh, I've had um, blog posts that have had million, literally millions of people read the post. Uh, I've been led to really interesting places through the blog that I write. And uh, it's where I test out new ideas. I mean, it's a really interesting place for me. And I think everybody needs a place on the web that's their real estate. I'm not saying abandon the social networks. I'm a virtually abandoned Facebook, but I'm not saying that everyone, I mean, there's a lot of people get a ton of, a ton of, of success out of the social networks. I'm not saying don't use them. Um, I'm uh, very much into LinkedIn, very much into Twitter. Um, but um, um, I don't want to ever rely on them as the 
as the exclusive way that I communicate. In your book, you talked about a subject that I'm sensitive about just because of the reactions I get, and that is that the word blogs has an image problem. Sometimes I'm using terms like, like I'm talking to a prospect, I'll say, well, we're going to have it on the educational section of your website. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, right. What's the perception of blogs, that everyone's in pajamas and that they're not somehow <laughs> serious like mainstream media? You know, um, I, I, I might be changing my mind yet again on this, Douglas. Um, so in the early, early, early days, and I'm talking like 02, 03, 04, 05 in that area, that's when blogs started to take off. And the word blog, you know, sh- shortened for weblog. Um, and, and, and so it was an interesting term because it was, oh, yeah, I can write a blog. You know, oh, how cool is that? Um, and then it kind of people, a lot of people would say, oh, but why do you, you know, why do you need, this is like 10 years later, why do you need a blog when you can be on Facebook? And they're like, well, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and then, and then I think people started to look down on blogs and say, oh, they're passe. Oh, you don't need a blog because you can, you can do the same thing on Facebook. Why not do it on Facebook? It has bigger reach. And so, um, now, and so I was telling people, don't use the word blog. Uh, instead, as you, as you su- just suggested, call it your information site or call it your, your news feed or whatever you want to call it on your website. But I did actually um, a little analysis on my own website just a couple of, of weeks ago. I used a service called Lucky Orange, which allows you to um, look at your website and see where people click. It's sort of a heat map approach to where people are going on your website. And I noticed that um, the vast majority of people were going to the blog. The heat map on the word blog was enormous. And so maybe based on the data, maybe I need to refine this idea that the word blog is old fashioned. Maybe now it's so, it's actually retro. Maybe it's coming back. Maybe the word blog is not so, not so such a bad thing anymore as people realize that, oh yeah, that's where David talks about the newest stuff. That's where, you know, or whoever it is, that's where Douglas talks about his newest stuff. Um, so, um, so I don't know. I, I haven't decided yet where I'm going to fall on this, but I'm, I'm not as worried about that word blog as I was even just a couple years ago. Well, to that point, I'm also wondering if people that are going to your particular site maybe are more familiar with, with the term, um, you know, it's maybe some industrial outfits. I don't know. I think they get over it once they see what it is and how it works for them. But that's actually a really interesting point. Maybe for an individual like me, I run a, a business of one person, maybe for someone like me, blog is a good term, but maybe if you're, um, uh, if you're a large organization and you have a website and then you have a place that you uh, post regular updates to, maybe it's, maybe that's not a blog. So, okay, let's, let's, let's keep that for now as our solution. (laughs) Okay, great. Great. (laughs) Well, David, one other question. What, what do you mean when you say that this entire book is about search engine marketing. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, y- y- you know, the whole idea of what we try to do when we create content, we publish videos, we appear on, you know, we do stuff on social networks, whatever, is from the perspective of marketing and public relations, I'm saying, is 
that we want to generate attention for our business. And so I think that every single thing that each of us publishes over our lifetime, each one of those is a breadcrumb that leads a trail to the place where action can happen, where people can reach out and ask you a question, where people can buy a product, where people can inquire about your services, where um, people can donate to your nonprofit, where people can apply to um, your school for admittance. Um, and, um, and so the more content you have, the more of the new rules of marketing and PR that you in, that you deploy, the more breadcrumbs you have that are pointing back to the place where people can engage with you or engage with your company or buy your product or donate to your cause um, or, um, or whatever it might be. And so um, I, think, I think that if you think of it that way, everything you're doing is part of a search engine optimization strategy. In other words, somebody's on YouTube and they enter a phrase, an obscure phrase, bang, if your video pops up, you've just, you've just done something awesome. And, um, and so the more you understand about creating content, the better your SEO is. I think it's better to focus on creating great content than it is to understand all the nuances about how the Google algorithm works, which is how a lot of people do SEO. You know, oh, if we just tweak this word in this particular tag and this particular order of the words, you'll get found in Google um, more easily. And that may be true, but why not just create a great article that will also help you get found in Google. Um, and so obviously working together is the best, but um, um, I don't, I don't think that, that, that tweaking, you know, tweaking bad content is still bad content. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's not um, written for you. Search, search, search engine optimizing a piece of crap is still, is a slightly better piece of crap. So, um, so anyway, um, I think that the more content you have, the more people who will find you. Well, if I could, I just have to read one quick excerpt about that. Yeah. It got me fired up. It's on page fired 376. Up. It says, in my experience, people often misunderstand search engine marketing because there's a slew of SEO firms that make it all seem so darn complicated. Uh -huh. to, to add to the problem, many, but certainly not all, SEO firms are a bit on the shady side, promising stellar results from simply manipulating keywords on your website. Perhaps you've seen the spam email messages of some of these snake oil salespeople. I've received hundreds of unsolicited email messages with headlines like, top search engine rankings guaranteed. While many search engine marketing firms are completely reputable and add tremendous value to marketing programs, I am convinced that the single best thing you can do to improve your search engine marketing is to focus on building great content for your buyers. Search engine marketing yeah. should not be mysterious and is certainly not trickery. David Merriman Scott, I just have to ask one more question. And it's yeah. in the vein of, I am clearly lighting your fuse because I know which buttons to push. <laughs> when it comes yeah, to, yeah. I've seen your speech, your, your keynote speeches and, and I've read your books. What is your deal with gobbledygook and stock <laughs> photos? Oh man. Yeah, that is a button that you can push. 
Um, well, but they're so you know, good. And I've, of course you've, uh, you've sensitized me to this, that I look at it, I look at it and I guess maybe I wince when I see it and that's probably a oh, good I, sign. I do too. And, and I, you, you make, the problem is you wince every single day. So, you know, the flexible, scalable solution for improving business process using cutting edge technology and mission critical applications, this innovative crap that people use, this language that they use um, it's meaningless. People don't even read. They, I mean, they read it, but they don't. They don't take that content in because if you're saying you're mission critical and and, and cutting edge and best of breed and innovative, um, it, it is nonsense words, nonsense language. And so, I recommend that you eliminate all of that language from your website. All of it because it, it has become meaningless. Um, and the second thing- and It's really pervasive in the tech world. It's everywhere. It, well, it's everywhere in every world because we're all, uh, we all gravitate to the jargon in our industry. Um, um, those particular words I just mentioned are very much in the tech world, but you know, the healthcare uh, business, the pharmaceutical business, they all have their- uh, their their jargon, and we need to eliminate jargon when we're trying to reach people. Unless you're trying to reach someone who isn't just you know in the thick of the jargon, maybe you can use it here and there because that's what the way that your buyer persona speaks. But I don't know any buyer persona that says I'm looking for a best of breed, mission critical application from an innovative company. They don't talk that way. And the point is that you need to talk the way that your buyers, buyer personas um, would, would talk. Um, uh, and so the second thing is stock photos. Now, I'm okay with stock photos that you use that are images, that are um, uh, you know, buildings or, 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 or whatever. That's cool. What I am against are stock photos of people that are used on websites and in marketing materials to represent either customers, employees, partners, um, people like that, because it's fake. Because if you pull out of a catalog an image to represent a customer, um, that's just fake. And people see through those images. They know that they're stock photos. They know that that's not your customer. They know that that's not your employee. They know that the people in that conference room are not in your conference room. They know that that person who's laughing alone with salad um, trying to represent your food business is not actually your customers. So you need to eliminate that gobbledygook. Amen. <laughs> so, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, that marketing like this is fun. It, you know, it's, I know there's so many people who think of marketing as drudgery. And I used to, by the way, I would think to, think to myself, oh my God, you know, I've got to do a brochure. Oh, please. How awful. You know, I've got to go through multiple iterations of the brochure and we have to double check to make sure every word is spelt right. Because if we go to print and there's a misspelling, oh, how awful. And, and, and now, you know, marketing is fun, you know, creating content. Awesome. Let's do a video today. Yeah, great. That'll be fun. Um, so I think that gravitating to the things that you love will yield good marketing. Douglas, you love doing this podcast. I know you do because you and I have talked about it before. Um, yes. You know, you, you, you thoroughly enjoy reading marketing books and talking to marketing book authors and, 
creating something that's truly valuable for the people who listen. You're doing marketing, but you're having fun doing it by creating this podcast. And that's, that's a, that's, I think that's a really important takeaway. If it's drudgery, figure something else out that you're going to like, because that, that's, that is the best way to get your brand out there. Oh, such great advice. What is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? <laughs> Eliminate those stock photos. You can do that today. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that's true. That's great. That's great. There's so many, there are hundreds and hundreds of ideas. And David Merman Scott even says, Hey, there's a lot of ideas here. I don't even do all of them. You got to figure out no, what, I don't. what works for you. Yeah. That's another thing. And that, and that goes actually goes into this idea of having fun is there are a lot of the ideas that are in the new worlds of marketing and PR that I, I do not do. I don't have a podcast, for example. Uh, I'm not on Snapchat. I tried it once. I'm not on Snapchat. I'm not on TikTok. You know, there's a lot of things I don't do. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to focus on a few things and do it really well than it is to try to spread yourself too thin. Great advice. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out? I try to read a novel and then a nonfiction and kind of swap back and forth. Great, great, great um, advice. Yeah. And I, I, if I, if I read two novels in a row, I kind of, you know, if I read two nonfictions in a row. So I just finished like two days ago where the crawdad thing and, and I loved it. And I, I, the reason I read it is because every time I looked on the bestseller list, it was there for like the last, I don't know how many years, two or three years. Um, and I went on Amazon as it's as, um, a solid five-star rating with 42,000 reviews. <laughs> 42,000 reviews. Oh my God. That's like the biggest number. That's amazing. And I love the book. I thought it was fabulous. Um, it has 48,000. 48,000. 48,000. I'll come back in um, a minute and tell you what the number is. No, I'm kidding. Uh, um, wow. 48,000 48, reviews. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was fabulous. And, um, you know, I, I, it's one of those books I got to the last page and like, oh, I really like those characters. I want this to continue. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your site and your LinkedIn profile and uh, these uh, other books that have been mentioned. And I will include a link to newmarketingmastery.com because that's the program that you did with uh, Tony Robbins. And yeah. if people want even more than what's in the book, uh, they can go there and you generously offered a $500 off to marketing book podcast listeners who use the absolutely the uh, coupon code. I think it's marketing book, marketing book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Can I add one more book? Because I wanted to add a nonfiction book. Oh, yeah. So um, I was huge. I'm a, as you know, Douglas, huge live music fan. And the latest nonfiction book I read was a book called All I Ever Wanted. And it's by Kathy Valentine. And she was uh, the bassist in the Go-Go's. And oh. it's, a, it's also, it's a fabulous, fabulous book about her growing up um, 
in the world of of new wave um, in the very late seventies, early eighties, and I loved the Go Go's back when I was in university, and um, and so that's the la- that's the latest nonfiction I read in my cycle of fiction nonfiction. Oh wow! Yeah, I did not know about that, and uh, I liked them a lot myself too. So, one last quote from page 397. So this is a big finale. You say, if I may be so bold as to boil down into one word, thousands of conversations I've had over the past decades, as well as more than 10 years worth of blogging and the entire contents of this book, it would be this, attention. Entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. CEOs, and business owners want people to pay attention to their company. Marketers, PR pros, advertisers, and salespeople are on the payroll to generate attention. Hopefully, this book opened your eyes to a new approach to this classic problem. I've identified four main ways to generate attention in today's marketing landscape. We've discussed them throughout these pages. So this list is not really new, but seeing them all collected together will give us some fresh perspective for dealing with people who might be skeptical or meddlesome. One, you can buy attention with advertising such as television, commercials, magazine, and newspaper ads. The yellow pages, billboards, trade show floor space, direct mail lists, and the like. Two, you can get attention from the editorial gatekeepers at radio and TV stations, magazine, newspapers, and trade journals. Three, you can have a team of salespeople generate attention one person at a time by knocking on doors, calling people on the telephone, sending personal emails, or waiting for individuals to walk into your showroom. Four. You can earn attention online by using the ideas in this book, creating something interesting and publishing it online for free. A YouTube video, a blog, research report, series of photos, Twitter stream, ebook, Facebook, fan page, or other piece of web content, which is very much like you talked about at the very beginning. And, and you know what? It was, it was really, really radical um, 13 years ago when I first published the first edition of the new rules of marketing and PR, it's not so radical right now, but still people aren't doing it as much as they should. Which just fascinates me. And I think that, uh, David, not to give you, you know, further life plans here, but you talked about how (laughs) we're about halfway through a 50 year transformation. And, uh, I think you said your mom's 85. So you could go ahead and write this book for the next 25 years and continue to update it. And it's still going to be necessary. So just <laughs> work toward there, uh, David. I, I think that uh, this, I hope you don't stop writing this book anytime soon and, and updating it. I, I um, already have plans uh, about two years from now for the eighth edition. <laughs> okay. Excellent. The name of the book is The New Rules of Marketing and PR, How to Use Content Marketing, Podcasting, Social Media, AI, Live Video, and Newsjacking to Reach Buyers Directly, 7th edition. The author is David Merriman Scott. David, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure, Douglas. Thanks again for having me on. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I really appreciate it and would like to return your kind favor by mailing you a thank you note and include a Marketing Book Podcast bookmark and laptop sticker. Just message me on LinkedIn, your mailing address, anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com. 
Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.